0: Listeners of a certain age might remember that, once upon a time, Steven Seagal was a really huge deal. Nowadays, he's regarded as something of a punchline. But you know, to kids growing up in the early 90s like me, the guy in the Under Siege movie was a certified action star badass. Are you like some special forces guy or something? Ryback is an ex-seal. Expert in martial arts. Explosives, Stand weapons, and tactics. I also cook. So it was mind blowing to us when he appeared in that legendary commercial for Tanduay Rum. Imagine, it's the early 90s. You're watching TV, and boom, Steven Seagal appears on your screen. He looks straight at the camera with a Steven Seagal stare holding a glass with a Steven Seagal grip, and then says, with a Steven Seagal voice, that now iconic line, I found gold in the Philippines. Look, I'm sorry, I couldn't find a clip of that ad on YouTube, so I just had to do my best Steven Seagal impersonation. Now, this is not the first time a white dude has talked about finding expensive rocks in our archipelago. Let's rewind around 470 years from the time of Stephen Seagal to the time of Ferdinand Magellan. Here's a quote from the expeditions chronicler Pieces of gold of the size of walnut and eggs are found by sifting the earth in the island of that king who came to our ships. Yup, that was Antonio Pigafetta. And just like Stephen Seagal, he too found gold in the Philippines. Succeeding Spanish voyagers now faced that classic conquistador's dilemma. How would they take all that gold from native hands and into their own? Welcome to the Colonial Department. This is the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In this episode, we accompany the Spaniards as they begin their plunder of Philippine treasures. This is Season 5, Episode 6, The Spanish Occupation. Fitting for an archipelagic people, the gold of our ancestors was both drawn from the water and mined from the earth. In the highlands of the Cordilleras, or the coast of Paracale, tunnels and pits pierced the ground, yielding gold that glowed in their crucibles as workers refined the hammered rocks into malleable metal. Meanwhile, in the shallows of rivers and estuaries, miners poured through sand and rock over and over, sifting for secretive glimmers, fine specks of dust, or bright and coarse pebbles, or perhaps, as Pigafetta had written, nuggets as big as walnuts and as big as eggs. From wherever the gold came from, the gathered metal was brought under the able hands of a pandai, who weighed the metal with a balance scale before getting to work. Our tradition of goldsmithing stretches back ages. In a burial site in Novaliches, archaeologists dug up golden earrings that are possibly 2,000 years old. Many of the more elaborate pieces that survive to this day were inspired by Hindu-Buddhist cosmology, figures of myth forged into finely wrought gold. Among the most fantastic pieces is a vessel in the shape of a kinari, a celestial figure with a woman's head and torso and the wings and legs of a bird. This vessel measures only around 2 inches wide and you probably need to hold it up real close to appreciate the painstaking work of the goldsmith, like the five-pointed diadem that flows across her brow, or the fine lotus petal shape of her eyes, or the feathers etched across her body. Other surviving artifacts include earrings in the shape of the bird-like Garuda, and a 2-kilogram, 21 carat gold statue of a Buddhist goddess. These pieces, excavated in northern Mindanao, showed that we too lived in the same Hindu-Buddhist world that inspired Angkor Wat in Cambodia and Borobudur in Indonesia. But beyond the mythic and mystical, many of the works hammered out under the careful hands of the pandai fulfilled one extremely important purpose, top to bottom drip. Our ancestors, male and female, rich and poor, young and old, living and dead, wore it all. Headdresses with human and bird figures carved across the crown. Articulated gild earrings strung together with gold wire that must have sparkled and spangled and jangled as the wearer walked down the barangay. Oversized armbands to pair with oversized golden belts that were woven together with a unique loop-in-loop technique. Leaf-shaped pendants to cover their privates. Leg bangles, dagger hilts, waist cords, tooth caps, grills, grills, in the shape of fish scales, no less. Here's Pigafetta again, breathlessly describing a bejeweled nobleman. His hair was exceedingly black and hung to his shoulders. He had a covering of silk on his head and wore two large golden earrings fastened in his ears. He wore a cotton cloth all embroidered with silk, which covered him from the waist to the knees. At his side hung a dagger, the haft of which was somewhat long and all of gold, and its scabbard of carved wood. He had three spots of gold on every tooth, and his teeth appeared as if bound with gold. He was perfumed with storax and benzoin. He was tawny and tattooed all over. According to one Spanish friar writing in 1580, gold was so commonplace in the Philippines that even slaves had some sort of gilded jewelry on them. The conquistadors wasted no time seizing everything they could get their hands on. They had done the same to the Incas in the Mexica, shipping out so many precious metals out of their American conquests that the loot spilled out of the doorways of the packed customs house in Seville. Why wouldn't Spain do the same to the Philippines? Records of the Spanish occupation of Luzon are full of figures of their plunder. From Manila, Juan de Salcedo marched up Ilocos in 1572 and looted 800 taels of gold, or approximately 40 kilos. Half of these he distributed to himself and to his men, and the rest were sent to the Spanish treasury. In that same year, another Spanish conqueror returned to Manila with 1,000 tails of gold, along with lots of other precious metals he didn't declare because he'd already given it away to his soldiers. More expeditions followed, and the weight of plunder grew successively heavier and heavier. From 1573 to 1574, the royal treasury logged in around 16,000 tails worth of gold, looted from Ilocos and Pangasinan alone an increase of 1,900% from Juan de Salcedo's first northward stab. This is how the Spanish soldiers seized the gold, according to a friar who accompanied one of these expeditions. They approached the village and, through an interpreter or two, demanded that all the inhabitants pay tribute so that they would become friends of the Spaniards. Sometimes, the villagers would fight back. Oftentimes, they would run. The soldiers then took off the fleeing civilians with their arquebuses, chasing after them and pulling valuables off their dead bodies as they passed. They then returned to the abandoned houses to complete their ransack, collecting all the gold, seizing all the rice, butchering all the pigs and chickens within. The Spanish may have called this pacification, But this was extortion and murder on a massive scale. In Ilocos, a scholar estimated that the population shrunk by half over a period of just three decades as conquest, disease, and evacuation took at all on the Indios. Even Spain's own friars began condemning the raids as criminal, inhumane, and ungodly. In response to the friars, some Manila bigwigs sent a letter to King Philip II, the guy whom the archipelago was named after. The conquistador's counter-argument was horrifyingly simple. The natives were rich, shrugged the officials. Rich in provisions, rich in fabric, rich in trade, and rich in, above all, gold. There was just so much of it around that they had to seize it. They wrote in the letter that some Indians wore jewelry worth up to 12,000 ducats. Would the natives miss it if the Spanish demanded that they hand their bling over? Would it even matter? This breezy rebuttal tells us all we need to know about how these conquerors thought. Robbery was their right, plunder their responsibility. Gold quickened the conquistador pulse and inflamed their imagination. They would not be satisfied for long with shaking down the indios for trinkets. Besides, that could only last so long until the natives had nothing left to give they had to find the source, the mother lode. In South America, the Spaniards searched fruitlessly for a city made of gold ruled by El Dorado, the Golden One. In Luzon, they plunged ever northwards, searching for the legendary mines of the Igorots. In 1624, an expedition of almost 2,000 men climbed up Benguet in three waves, hoping to find glittering deposits. But all they found were deadly ambushes, abandoned houses, and mine pits that disappointed the surveyors. As costs and casualties climbed, with only a pittance of gold to show for it, the Royal Audiencia pulled the plug on the expedition after just four months. It seemed that even here in the Philippines, El Dorado would always remain tantalizingly out of reach. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Colonial Department. Find us on Instagram and TikTok for more history, behind-the-scenes, and non-fiction book recommendations. If you want to listen to more tales of loot and plunder, check out Season 1, Episode 12, The Pearl and Plunder of the Orient Seas. Leo Mangubat wrote, narrated, and produced this episode. Anya Ong Reyes read quotations from sources. Audio from Under Siege is from Warner Brothers. References include 1. The book Philippine Ancestral Gold, published by the Ayala Foundation. 2. The book A History of Christianity in the Philippines, Volume 1, The Initial Encounter, by T. Valentino Sitoy Jr. 3. The book Conquest and Pestilence in the Early Spanish Philippines by Linda Newson. 4. The Digital Collections of the Museo ng Banco Central ng Pilipinas. 5 scholarly articles from Victor Australia, and Olivia Habana on gold working and gold mining.